Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss stock market bubbles and what investors can learn from them, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. Gosh, it's been another busy week, um, but we're going to try and make sense of it uh, with the help of our regulars. So Will and Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance. I think it's fair to say a, a real topic of conversation in market land over the last week or so has been about stock market bubbles. We've seen really extraordinary scenes in the US markets. We, we had a now world famous, although I'm not sure many of us over the age of, of 20 had heard of the, the video game retailer, but, but that rose 1600% in the fortnight to the 27th of January and then, and then fell over 70% in price yesterday. So we're hearing a bit about chat rooms. Reddit chat rooms are apparently to blame, but no doubt there'll be some kind of proper analysis done uh, with the fullness of time. But we're going to try to get to the bottom of this and, and related fears about whether is this symptomatic of a wider market bubble and, and something that as investors we need to get you know, fearful of? So, Will, tell us a little bit about what's been going on. Reddit chat rooms, driving stock prices. Obviously, apart from making us feel desperately old, what do you make of it? Well, uh, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, Nikki, that I actually had to look Reddit up. <laughs> uh, I didn't know what it was, which shows what a, <laughs> what a uh, <laughs> I'm way behind the times. I'm very old. <laughs> and you're forever going on about technology being, you know, what makes humankind continuously <laughs> evolve and um, yourself you're self excluded. <laughs> yes, totally right. You know, I think that we obviously look more broadly, you know, we're not trying to sort of pick single stocks and we're generally trying to invest over the long term as well, which is, you know, really changes the odds a little bit more in your favor, in our opinion. And if you look, you know, at the more diversified story, the, you know, the levels of valuation at the index level, um, and this is what people are sort of, you know, kind of worrying about. You look at the sort of US stock market, the S&P, for example, you know, I would argue that valuations look high, but not unjustifiably so. I do think that the assumptions or we do think that the assumptions you need to make in terms of kind of future cash flows and earnings growth to make the valuation of some of those kind of mega cap, those, you know, really much more consequential companies, uh, the mega cap companies, yet the valuations and the assumptions you need to make leave very little margin for error. So, you know, regulatory risk, overseas digital taxation, all those kind of things, they're just some of the problems in the pipeline for those sort of big names in the years ahead. And I think if to us, it suggests that somewhat less exciting word, but it's diversification and just making sure that you're not constantly putting too many of your eggs in one basket. Yeah. And, and so, Rob, bubbles are, are very much your field because they're typically driven by behavioural factors rather than fundamental factors. The fact that there was no actual news flow coming out of GameStop when the stock suddenly rallied massively, it sort of points to the idea that there wasn't much of a fundamental backing for this move. Clearly, there was some kind of activist investor coming on board, which stimulated this. But give us a bit of a checklist of things that we should be watching out for. How many of those are checked off at the market level as opposed to at the single stock level? Hi, morning, Nikki. Yes. So I think if we think about, I guess, this particular example, GameStop, and what's going on here, like you say, it's quite clearly that there's a lot of different factors affecting what's going on here. And, and I guess the, the thing that's interesting in this particular example, usually you know, with bubbles, one of the big you know, catalysts of, of what 
sort of drives these things forward is often sort of an over-optimism in sort of stories that justify the price increases that, that you're seeing. But that interestingly, that's kind of missing a little bit here in terms of, it seems that people, you know, there's not an overriding story that says this stock actually suddenly is now worth a thousand times more than it was, you know, a few weeks ago. But actually there's this sort of narrative around, you know, normal people getting in and, and getting reaping some rewards at the expense of, you know, hedge funds and Wall Street. And, and this is kind of like social leveling up narrative that's really mm. been pushed by some of the kind of social media participants to really gain some traction and get people interested and, and continue that buying kind of spree and powerful, push that behavior. Now, I guess just like with a lot of other bubbles, we still see some of the same behaviors, some of the same drivers. And I think that the slightly, slightly more worrying draws, if you like, is what we call like a lottery effect. So there's a very big skewed upside that people see. So they see, you know, well, I can potentially, you know, gain a thousand pound, a thousand percent, uh, on the upside. But obviously, you know, the downside is, is I lose a hundred percent, but that actually seems like a very good trade quite often when we, especially if we're talking about, you know, smaller amounts for the same reason why lotteries are, are very um are very popular because it's the outsized gains that, that seem to trump everything in our in our minds when we're thinking about whether we want to take part in these things. And so the desire to, you know, turn a quick profit, the fear of missing out, regret, you know, is very powerful. And so suddenly a lot of people get kind of sucked in. And then I think, you know, it's very easy for these for these bubbles, whether it be, you know, GameStop or some of the other stocks we're seeing the last week. Or just broader, you know, asset bubbles like you know the dot com bubble and housing price bubbles, where we overestimate our ability to predict the future and, and base a lot of our judgments on the recent past and use that as very representative of what's just going to continue happening in the future, which isn't always the case. Quite often, isn't the case, and so we see when when they start to um, sort of fall apart, a correction, as we saw yesterday with GameStop, can be quite sudden and quite quick. But things like herd behavior, you know, again, back to, I guess, some of the fear of, of not wanting to miss out when other people are taking part and seeing the benefits. And so a lot of, you know, overconfidence gets weaved into our judgment. And we often think that we can, we can get, even if we, even if we think, you know, maybe this does look a bit too good to be true, there's an overconfidence in our ability to be able to get out before it all turns south. Um, and we tend to overestimate our abilities compared to other people. So of course we never believe that we're going to be the one, one of the ones left, you know, holding the um, holding the smoking gun, if you like. I, I guess do we see this at a market level? I'm not sure we do, and I'm sure Will, you know, has some more specific thoughts. He was talking about sort of the valuation story there. You know, are, are we not? We're not cheap, but are we in a bubble? I, you know, I don't think so. It doesn't seem to be this sort of euphoria. The levels of general euphoria, leaving GameStop and some of these other stocks aside for a minute. Uh, you know, in the wider market that we would expect to see when we're thinking about wider bubbles. I think that's right. I mean, if you take just looking at the index level, like, you know, you've got to looking at back over history, you know, major bubbles are actually quite a bit rarer than you might imagine. And, and the fact that I think, you know, two of history's biggest, baddest bubbles, you know, blown up to catastrophic effect this millennium, you know, Rob name check them both, you know, alongside the fact that they come with such compelling, you know, awful narratives. I think that perhaps leads us to exaggerate their frequency. I get Rob will probably have stuff to say about this, you know, there, there are surely biases here. But, you know, if you look over the last 350 odd years, there are probably 10 or 12 major bubbles that really stick out from those, you know, famously expensive tulips onwards. And there is actually, you know, there's a famous Yale professor of finance, William Kurtzman. I think we've talked about him before, but yeah. uh, he looked at equity market data from a load of countries going back as 
far as kind of credibility allows. And, and the results were interesting. I'm going to give you a shorthand. But what he basically finds is that a large price increase over the course of a year is twice as likely to be followed by another year um, of high returns compared to a you know a severe market decline. I guess the inference here is that what can often look like exuberance to the hard-nosed investor at the time, more often than not, turns out to be changing reality in hindsight, a, a step change in innovation or technology. Now, you know, I'm not saying that you know GameStop and you know some of these other uh, companies, you know, their wild ride that they've given share prices, uh, you know, investors should be treated as such. But at the wider market level, I think it's worth pointing out that bubbles are a lot, lot rarer uh, than the media headlines would often suggest. Yeah, and to Will's point, I guess not. Not only have we had two in recent history, which tends to affect how you know how we're going to think about how many we're going to see going forward, but also the size of them. And the effect they have is very tangible. So, you know, it's much easier to recall a big crash due to a, due to a bubble than it is, you know, many years of smaller gains and losses that we would normally see and associate with normal sort of market behavior, if you like. And I think one of the issues or the real issues with bubbles is much easier to spot in hindsight than, than, than at the time. And, and so we have this false sense that we, that we know how to spot them because we can look back and, and say, oh, okay, this is the bubbles that we've seen in the recent past. This is how easy it was to, to spot them now that we've had them. And suddenly we believe that we're much better placed to spot the next one. And that kind of puts us on the front foot always, if you like, of, of always looking for the, for the next bubble. Now, there's always going to be people claiming that prices are too high. That's what makes a market. But far more often, they're proven wrong than right. And just before we move on from here, I mean, just just thinking back to some of the comments you made just now, Rob, around the the drivers of bubbles, you, you mentioned that that lottery effect, the, the that downside risk versus the potential upside and linked with that fear of missing out or, or the sort of herd behavior that you know everyone's doing it so it must be okay I guess there's there's perhaps a bit of a mirror to hold up here to sort of say look just remember if, if you're noting what's going on and you're tempted to get involved you know as long as you're prepared to potentially lose a hundred percent of that if you're putting a hundred quid on and can afford to lose a hundred quid well that's probably okay. But you know, if you're if you're doing it because you think it's a investment plan, or it's it's something that's definitely going to enrich you, then then really think twice. And and think about perhaps some of the motivations around what's going on, why people are encouraging others to, to get involved with this that might otherwise not have taken any interest whatsoever. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a very good point. Actually, it, it brings some echoes back to when we first saw the sell-off in, in March last year, the, the first sort of um, sell-off after the pandemic hit. And, you know, there was a bit of a narrative around there were some retail investors going into stocks that, you know, had already listed for bankruptcy. And there was a bit of a narrative that was, you know, or just, you know, they're silly penny you know, retail investors don't know what they're doing. Yeah, penny trading, you know, just want to get rich quick. But actually, when you look under that, I think we have to be careful there because, you know, like, of everything there's never a, a one-size-fits-all there are you know many people who at that point and probably still now are just a bit bored uh, have a bit of extra money around and so you know if they want to take their five pounds ten pound whatever it may be and you know they're happy that this is essentially a gamble then you know who's to stop them getting their kicks if you like that way but at the same time like you say i think the thing we need to be careful about is you know that you don't want to be the one who's committed, you know, more than you can afford to 
completely lose when the music stops. And that's the danger. And you always see at the end of these things that there's always those sad stories where there are people who, who couldn't necessarily afford to you know, be in that position who, who do end up in that position. Yeah, well, well said. Okay, and so coming back to the market-wide view here, often when we do see stock market surges, there's there's often that that's related to a change in expectations. So, uh, Will, thinking about, we've talked a bit about the the fourth industrial revolution, the technological leap forward that that comes with, you know, whether it's robotics, artificial intelligence. The Internet of Things, my long-awaited self-driving cars everywhere, so I don't have to put another two children through learning to drive. Um, does that explain some of those elevated valuations that, that we're seeing in some parts of the technology sector you spoke of before when you were talking about those, those large mega caps, the growth stocks? Are we really seeing this sort of economic transformation materialising now? Well, I mean, it is potentially. And I think I had a really good way of describing this, actually, from a, from another economist. So if you think of the how to frame the fourth industrial revolution in a way. So if you think of the first industrial revolution as the moment when production, in inverted commas, moves out of the house into the factory, you know, those dark satanic mills. Yeah. Now, if you think of this stage in England, you know, it's the early 18th century. There's a huge amount of the all important kind of textile industry was centered around the home. Now, you know, this is actually, as, a, as it goes, where you get the term cottage industry from. Now, that work was ripped away from the home and relocated to factories populated with, you know, the new machines of the era. Economic activity remained, you know, far from the home for hundreds of years, really until this crisis in many ways. And the emerging technologies of the fourth industrial revolution facilitated this kind of large scale return to household production. So think about your TV. You know, now rather than going out and buying a DVD manufactured somewhere, whether it's Asia or anywhere in the world, now, you know, the intellectual property is streamed to your home and your TV or set box or whatever it is, then kind of manufactures the product in your home. Now, you know, furthermore, like in the UK, you know, this crisis has forced us now, you know, I think around half of the UK's jobs or forced us to realise that around half of the UK's jobs can be done fully from home. And the expectation of many is that, you know, the fourth industrial revolution will facilitate more of our jobs to be done from home. So, you know, I guess we're going to see. I mean, it, I think, um, you know, potentially. Sorry, I mean, I'm always going to sit on the fence, aren't I? But that's, 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 that's as well as it can get. Rob, help, help wrestle Will down here. <laughs> well, I mean, no, I mean, look, Will makes a good point. And I think the word potentially is, uh, is an important one. We just, we just need to be cautious when we're trying to, you know, I guess, think about some of these big shifts, you know, way into the future, I guess, uh, you know, for all the reasons we talked about around how easy it is for us to kind of fall into some of the traps of, of, you know, our thinking getting, getting biased, but at the same time, you know, a lot of this has been brought forward. Um, and so it's not necessarily a distant future anymore. It's potentially quite a, quite a close future. I think just to play devil's advocate, the one thing I'd say is it could be that we're seeing, you know, the limits of tech rather than the limitless potential of technology but you know how much change will we really see and i think something that's interesting for me nikki and you mentioned driverless cars there right at the beginning but is for a lot of technological advancement we're seeing at the moment especially that relates to consumers it really revolves around behavior change you know the technology for driverless cars exists and has existed for some time now um that is not the barrier the barrier is more around how um, you know, we we accept these and, and use these technologies. And the reality is that old habits die hard. I think, you know, this pandemic, as many people have said, all, 
many times before you know it was obviously sped up a lot of a lot of progress and process that was already in place but the interesting thing for me is that after the pandemic not that it's necessarily a watershed moment quite like that but you know after the restrictions on our on our activities are lifted you know we could see uh i guess a, a backlash if you like against remote working and and living so much in our homes you know and a huge uptick in social contact and desire for offline activities beyond levels that we saw pre-pandemic because we've been you know stuck inside for so much time now um and you know that wouldn't be you know out of the ordinary similar to there were similar reactions after after the blitz and people were basically you know cooped up for eight months um and you know we suddenly saw after that increased social activities and, and a baby boom so you know i guess could any of these effects just be temporary could they be more permanent you know who knows but i think there's there's a lot to think about i obviously totally agree rob i mean so i think the point is like we're, we're, we're describing just a few of the multitude of future paths that always branch out from the moment we're in right now um and again um you know as we said last week this is precisely why we don't organize our clients long-term investment allocations around a kind of macho guess at just one of those millions of future potential paths no betting the house on on one one outcome. So what about the industrial revolution? So if we do start to see that future materialising, the next revolution, what, what kind of things might we expect um, when it comes to you know, how the economy might flex towards that? Well, you can sort of, you know, you can speculate and sort of extrapolate from where we're in right now. You know, this is why people are thinking about it so much is because, you know, as Rob said, we've sort of been given a taste of the future or one potential future where we have these kind of jobs that are mostly from home and we are mostly located at home, you know, and, and some, you know, so there's there's some fascinating aspects to it, I think, you know, and, and some really interesting things that we can speculate around. But some economic historians, for example, use the evolving locus of production, so how near or far from home jobs have tended to be, to answer changes in female labour force participation over time. So, for instance, the cottage industry we just talked about, that period was seen as a great period for women in the labour force. However, this opportunity evaporated as work moved to factories. Now, furthermore, there are some who explain, you know, the stubbornly persistent gender pay gap through the persistence of less flexible jobs in terms of hours. So uh, essentially, there seems to be a gigantic premium put on jobs that work inconvenient hours, both in terms of the amount of time you have to spend in the office or when you're in the office. Now, in societies where women are still seen as you know primary parents or caregivers and where social safety nets are perhaps less generous this is argued as a key impediment to narrowing the gap in gender pay so perhaps the revolution towards more flexible jobs could see a surge in female labor force participation or even you know older age segments participation so, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of things. Other people have speculated that, you know, offices tend to be better places for extroverts versus introverts. So if you move more office work outside, does this become a boom for, uh, you know, the more introverted people? You know, and I think more broadly, industrial revolutions are mega, mega disruptive. Uh, you know, Rob alluded to this, you know, so inequality rises, you have huge needs for redistribution. But in the end, I mean, I think the, the, you know, the, the net effect at the economic level, if you think about debt piles and growth, you know, the, the aftermath of the first industrial revolution shows shows us how quickly, you know, industrial revolutions can help eat government debt piles and you know, growth. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really important point, I guess. And just now, I think you and the team have expressed recently levels of government debt, which obviously have, have increased to, to deal with the pandemic. How worrying are you finding that? 
Yeah, it's interesting. We're not very worried, in truth. Not like in not not in the way that some of the newspaper headlines are asking of us. I have to admit, and it's a it's a very regular question we get from clients, though, and a lot of people are worried about it. And I get that. I really do. It is interesting, though, that there is a very different academic consensus feeding policy decisions this time around. So, if you look at the aftermath of the last, you know, great recession, the the, the global financial crisis, it was the work of a very a couple of very well known academics. Carmen Reinhardt and Kenneth Rogoff. And in a, in a daunting piece of scholarship, they argued that history points to there being a limit to government debt to GDP, roughly 80%, and above which all sorts of bad things start to happen to countries and your growth prospects um, deteriorate. Now, for what it's worth, uh, we actually sort of argued persistently against this idea. We've always felt that the relationship between you know, government debt and growth is, is simply hazier than implied. However, this Fed policy, you know, austerity policies and so on, were very much grounded on this kind of academic consensus about government debt. Well, fast forward to today, and the big paper doing the rounds is from some guys, Larry Summers and Jason Furman, um, and their argument is almost opposite. They're saying that, you know, debt to GDP is not a meaningful statistic, or at least not as meaningful as, you know, its widespread usage uh, implies. It's not an apples for apples comparison. We've explained that before. And they urge a focus on debt servicing costs as the more relevant measure of debt sustainability. Now, going on this, because of, you know, the fact that interest rates are on the floor, the argument is that, you know, the many issues we face, both near and far, from, you know, shockingly unequal access to education to climate, you basically have to find reasons not to deficit spend, deficit spend and add to your um uh, your debt pile. And frankly, if you are entering an industrial revolution, then your social safety net better be up to it because jobs are destroyed and created at an accelerated pace. It's a very sort of disruptive time. Uh, the other, the final point to make here is that that obviously implies that interest rates will remain low. But I think, you know, it's not unfair in a sense to assume that they will may remain lower than they have done for some most, but you know, for large parts of history, in a sense, just because you know these guys point to that the fact that interest rates have been falling for decades. Others would argue actually centuries as it goes, but these guys see real interest rates, inflation-adjusted interest rates, falling for at least the last thirty years across multiple countries, and that basically suggests that there are structural rather than cyclical, kind of more fleeting forces exerting pressure here. So that's why they're arguing that you need to spend more. So that's an interesting point, I think, to to end on-ish. The segue I just want to make, though, is, as you say, if, if interest rates could be low for longer, that, that clearly has an impact on, on savers. And I think Rob, as our behavioural guru, you know, January, we're, we're right at the end of January. Hopefully most people have managed to, to achieve whatever they set out to achieve so far in 2021. Um, but we all do tend to, to spend January sort of thinking about what, what plans we want to make, what habits we want to get into. You know, one of the things that, that perhaps we would be thinking about as we've hopefully completed our tax returns, those of us that need to do them, um, and thought about any planning that we need to do, it's probably a good time to, to think about putting in place those plans. Rob, anything, anything that you can share by way of public service broadcast around, around uh, things <laughs> that we ought to be doing for our financial health? Maybe not so much going into our, our, our health health, but uh, our financial health. <laughs> No, I think, as you say, it's, you know, we're now, I don't want to say well into the year, but, you know, we're, we're definitely not right at the start of the year anymore. So I guess people are looking forward to what they want to financially, how they're going to kind of get through this year and into, into next. Yeah. I think, you know, looking forward to ISA 
tax deadline, which is um, sort of April, uh, is, is actually going to be upon us quite soon. And I think, you know, although we can't obviously give tax advice and, you know, the advantages are, are slightly different depending on, you know, your, your personal situation. But the nice thing, if you like, about what I say about ISAs and the allowances that you get there is it's a natural kind of um, reminder and a natural sort of device, if you like, to, to help people think about getting invested and using what savings that people have if it's appropriate to tie them up you know into into investments because as you say with rates being as, as low as they are and inflation as long as it's above those rates then you know people are going to be seeing uh, real uh, losses by sitting in uh, in cash yeah good reminder all right so will rob thank you so much i think uh, some of the things that we've touched on today we'll probably want to revisit very soon but with that have a great week this podcast is not a personal investment recommendation all tax rules can change in future and their effects depend on your individual circumstances, which can also change. We don't offer personal tax advice. You should obtain this independently if you are unsure. Investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.